1 Corinthians chapter 1. We started this study last week, and now we're returning to chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. That's our text. The topic we're going to find there, Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians by taking them back to their experience of the grace of God. The title of our message, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Grace. Yeah. You know who has a great version of that is Johnny Cash. Did you know Johnny Cash covered that song? How many of you know that? One person. Johnny Cash. All right. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning thus far. I pray, Lord, that as we work through uh, today's study and also all the studies that you allow us to have before your coming uh, in this book, Lord, that uh, we would understand uh, not just what the words mean and in the context uh, they were originally delivered, that's important, but what they mean in our context as well. And so without violating anything, Lord, we want to put ourselves into this book and uh, do more than learn. We want to grow. Learning is great. Growing is better. I pray that we would grow in the Lord our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, as usual, if there's someone here that doesn't know you or is far from you, Lord, we pray that they would come back or come for the first time. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. A rare Bible went on display for several months starting in April of this year. Only three copies are known to exist. It's called the Slave Bible. The 200-plus-year-old book was used to justify slavery in the British West Indies during the 19th century. How so? Most of the Bible is missing in the slave Bible. The editors removed 90% of the Old Testament and half of the New Testament. References to freedom and escape from slavery are missing, while passages uh, encouraging obedience and submission to your master are emphasized. They removed portions that could inspire hope for liberation, said museum director Seth Pollinger. It was originally published in London in 1807, and get this, it was distributed by a missionary group, the Society for the Conversion of Negro Slaves, or should I say the Society for Deceiving Negroes into Remaining Slaves, because that was the uh, idea. Make the slaves happy, let them know that they're saved and that, they're, that God wants them to be slaves, Uh, and you've got some real cotton picking going on. Something was missing in the church at Corinth. Missing was the grace of God. Now, that's not entirely true. At least it isn't the whole story. God's grace was abundant, was being showered upon the believers, so much so that Paul could say that they were enriched in everything. But we will see that God's abundant, enriching grace was not being displayed in their personal walk or in their corporate worship. They had experienced God's grace, but they were not really expressing it. If there's one takeaway from being with a believer or being in a gathering of believers, it ought to be the grace of God. He has declared it. We ought to display it. And so I'll organize my comments around those two points. Number one, God declares his grace wooing you. And number two, you display God's grace worshiping him. And so number one, God declares his grace wooing you in verses one through three. Now, I'm still convinced that the most significant reason people immediately reject God is the problem of evil in the world. If he is God, why doesn't he do something about it? He has. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus was talking about being lifted up from the earth on the cross by the death he would die. 
It accomplished two things. Number one, the ruler of this world, Satan, would be cast out. We see what Jesus meant in the book of the Revelation. All evil will end for all eternity. And second, the cross made it possible for God to justify sinners, to save for eternity anyone who calls upon Jesus. The problem of evil is on us, not God. Even our sovereign, omnipotent God cannot create beings in his image without giving them genuine free will to reject his goodness and his blessings. Uh, He can produce robots who must do certain things, uh, but he can't produce a free a being in his own image who doesn't also have real freedom. And so we're the sinners, he's the savior. We're at fault, he is faithful. With so much evil in the world, the real question is, why don't you get saved? His long-suffering waits for people to hear the gospel and be saved. God has an end game, and it's a good one. It's laid out logically and chronologically for us in the Bible's final chapters. Cross was the ultimate sacrifice. It proves God so loved the world And by it, Jesus has sent his spirit into the world to woo sinners to salvation. He wooed them in evil Corinth. The background of this letter is they weren't Christians. Paul came there and many got saved. And that's the work of God. And so let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. The apostle Paul had founded the church in Corinth. He spent 18 months there the longest he was anywhere except for three years in Ephesus. It's interesting to note that even with Paul as their teacher for an extended time, it didn't take the believers long to revert back to carnality. We saw some of that last week. We'll see it page after page in this book. They were walking in the flesh. As we get deeper into the letter, we're going to find that many of the believers were doubting Paul's authority as an apostle. They were saying that he wasn't a real, genuine apostle like uh, the first uh, 11 guys. He starts out reminding them he was called by God. It wasn't a ministry he was appointed to by men. It wasn't his will. It was God's will. He was struck down by Jesus, overcome by his glory on the way to murder believers in Damascus, called very dramatically by the Lord into the ministry of an apostle. Sosthenes is uh, most likely the same guy mentioned in the book of Acts who was under uh, the rulership of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth. If so, he got saved through Paul's preaching of the gospel. It was Paul's uh, pattern to go into a city, and if he could find a Jewish synagogue or a group of Jews meeting, he would begin his preaching there. He'd always get kicked out eventually, and then he would take his message to Gentiles, and Sosthenes was the ruler of the synagogue at that time and got saved. Now, Stop for a moment, put on your grace glasses. Jesus Christ confronted Paul, who was called Saul at the time, on the road to Damascus, saving him. Not only did Jesus save Paul, he called him to be his apostle. Twenty years later, Paul is directed divinely by the Holy Spirit to go to Corinth. He had originally wanted to go somewhere else, but the Lord sent him in this direction. He preached a very simple gospel message in the most vile city in the empire, The Corinthians, and I quote, were unrighteous fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. That's what it meant to live in Corinth. And that's probably just the cream of the crop in terms of evil. God freed their will to receive Jesus, and some of them did. 
It's almost impossible for us to realize the amazing grace of God saving, then sending Paul, then establishing a church. But it's all a part of the big plan that we have here in the Bible, starting in Eden and ending in eternity. And so God, uh, Paul doesn't say it directly, but indirectly and between the lines, he is reminding these Corinthian Christians of the grace of God and, and how abundant it is and how enriching it is and how freeing it is because they had gone from grace into the works of the flesh and that they were walking in the flesh. And so he takes them back to their origins. And not just when he came to Corinth and preached the gospel with power, but all the way back to his own conversion. Uh, and, and all the way back beyond that to the plan of God. It was a stunning display of grace. Instead of dispatching an angel to Corinth, a la Sodom and Gomorrah, God sent an apostle to plead with them. I mean, if any city de- uh, demanded justice and judgment in those days, it would have been Corinth. And if we had read in our Bible instead that an angel came and destroyed Corinth, uh, we might think that that was justified. But God says, no, I'm not doing that right now. I'm sending this apostle who I called 20 years ago uh, because I am long-suffering and I wait for people to get saved. Uh, We have a hard time with this because churches pop up all the time uh, around us. Uh, I'm gonna say something. I think I've said this before and I don't wanna be misunderstood, but, but I mean this. I don't think there's a need for any more churches in Hanford or in Lemoore. And what I mean by that is there are plenty of really good churches to choose from. They all have a little bit of a different flavor, uh, but there's a lot of Bible teaching churches in Hanford and Lemoore and Armona, I guess, and uh, maybe not Riverdale. Uh, no, that's not true. They have that big AOG church, which is a great church. So uh, there's no need. And, and a lot of times churches spring up because somebody just wants to start a church. David Brooks used to come up after I'd say things like this, and he says, I remember the old preacher used to ask, was you sent or did you just went? And that's the idea. Some people just went, and they say, oh, here's a church. They have no story to tell. They're just a Christian who, you know, hey, five people were in my living room, and so we started a church. And, uh, you know, God, God's gracious. He can even bless that. I'm not saying he doesn't. Uh, but uh, w- w- church planting and churches, we don't see them as miraculous events anymore. Uh, it's not like Paul going into this terribly wicked city and people probably saying, Are, you're going to Corinth? Are you crazy? Go somewhere nicer first. Get, get, you know, get a little bit of uh, missionary work under your belt kind of a thing. And, and uh, Paul says, no, this is where God's sending me. And a, a church is formed in the darkest location possible. It's amazing. And so verse two, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. The church is believers in Christ. It's his church. He is its foundation. He is its builder. We are living stones set in that building as he sees fit. Sanctified means set apart or saved, and it involves three stages as it's taught in the New Testament. Number one, the moment you receive Jesus, you receive the indwelling Holy Spirit and you are saved. If you have not the Spirit, you're not a Christian. And so you you receive the Spirit immediately. Second, for the rest of your life on the earth, Jesus works to finish the work he has begun in you. 
And third, at your resurrection or at the rapture, you will have a glorified body, be eternally free from sin, and enjoy eternity in heaven with Jesus and all the saints. So no matter how far along you are of being like Christ, it will be completed in the end. And so the moment you believe, you're a saint. It isn't a title given to certain believers after they die and after their life is reviewed for whether they did miraculous acts. Have you ever been to a meeting of the Lions Club? The members must address each other as Lion so-and-so. Hello, Lion Rhett. Well, hi, Lion Gene. Hi, Lion Rusty. Well, hello. And if you address a fellow lion without saying lion first, then they fine you. You have to put a dollar or five dollars in a, a bucket. And then they use the fine for something, I don't know. But uh, it's interesting. They're all lions in that meeting. We are all saints. Now, I'm not suggesting we call each other saint, although it would be an interesting tithing technique. No? I meant that as a laugh, but uh, anyway. Anytime you don't say Saint Jean, dollar goes in the kitty, you know, so kind of a thing. But we're not going to do that. I'll think about it, but probably not today at least. Anyway. Called to be saints, though, is better translated called to be holy. That's what a saint is. It's somebody that's set apart holy for the Lord. The emphasis here is that God will make you holy, that holiness is possible on account of his grace. Without him, you've got no choice. The last clause of verse 2 reminds the believers in Corinth they are part of something much bigger, a geography-defying, century-spanning, supernatural building project. Again, grace is on display as we see the gospel as the universal solution to mankind's universal problem, which is sin. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Theologian Karl Barth was once asked if he could summarize what he believed uh, in a single sentence. He replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, great for a, a guy, an egghead theologian, and he said, hey, what do, you, what do you believe in a single sentence? And instead of being stumped, he was ready because that's what it all comes down to. Ray Ortland summarizes his theology this way. He says, the lover of our souls won't let the romance die but is rekindling it forever. Different approach, but I think it's also a good summary. How would you answer that if somebody said, can you describe what you believe in one sentence? Uh, I visited websites, and, and not run-on sentence, one, one site where I got the Ray Ortland quote, this guy had a sentence that was like a Paul the Apostle sentence. It was like 500-word sentence, you know. That's not what we're looking for. But if you ever get asked and you feel stumped, just cite John 3.16. That, that's as, as good an answer as any right from the Bible it says, itself. rather. Uh, now, I'm getting into this because one of the commentators I read say that Paul's entire theology is summarized by verse 3. Not that he meant to do that, but that you can see everything that he believed. By grace, God woos the undeserving, hell-doomed sinner seeking to save you. Nothing can be deserved or achieved. It is offered to all as a gift to receive. Then this commenter wrote, a commentator wrote, I quote, the sum total of the benefits as they are experienced by the recipients of God's grace is found in the word peace meaning well-being, wholeness, and welfare. The one flows out of the other, and both together flow from God our Father and were made effective in human history through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of the Lord and uh, through our Father, uh, we have grace that leads to peace with God. 
And, and that, again, another great summary of what the Bible teaches. God's amazing grace changes everything. It saves, it sanctifies, it glorifies. I was listening to A.W. Tozier the other day. He's got a couple of, well, he's got anything by A.W. Tozier. If you're not familiar with him, you should just start reading his books. But just remember, about half the time, you're gonna wonder if you're really a Christian. He's one of those guys. It's like, oh, man, please, not that. But uh, it's edifying in the end. But uh, he was talking about something that I can't remember now. But, uh, (laughs) because... No, I got it. Um, He's talking about all, because we we sometimes talk about all the other religions of the world and their works versus ours is of grace, and that's true. But he also made a point, everybody else, uh, every psychology, every philosophy, every religion, they're trying to find something within you, something within you that they can kindle that that is a spark of the divine or something like that. And and it's always something within you. And Jesus Christ comes and, and, and he says, what's in you is dead. There's nothing in you that could possibly save you. I have to come upon you. I have to come in you. And that's what we are. We're, we're vessels that are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we're saved. And so there's no way that any other religion or philosophy can be true because we don't need something from within. That's the problem. It's the problem of the heart. We need something from without. And Jesus is the only one who can provide that through the Holy Spirit. Number two, verses four through nine, you display God's grace worshiping him. How would you like to earn $100 an hour? I'm assuming that that's a good wage for most people. That's the going rate for human mannequins. You pose in display windows as if you were a mannequin. How am I doing? How's that? Clowns creep out some people. Mannequins are a close second. Whenever I see one, I'm drawn back to episode 34 of The Twilight Zone, The After Hours. Marsha White is shopping in a department store, but things are not quite what they seem. Turns out Marsha White was a store mannequin. Within their society, the mannequins take turns one at a time to live among the humans for one month. Marsha had enjoyed her stay among the outsiders for so much that she had forgotten her identity. A mannequin is a frame that gets adorned with items to be put on display. Do you realize that when the church returns with Jesus at his second coming, we will be adorned and put on display? 2 Thessalonians 1.10. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. This is not the rapture when Jesus comes for his saints. This is the second coming ending the great tribulation when he comes with us. He will be glorified, it says, in his saints, in us, at that coming, because we will be in our glorified eternal bodies. We'll be blameless without blemish, perfected by him. And the people on the earth who survive the tribulation, they will marvel at what Jesus has done for us. We will be on display then. And we're on display now. Our display isn't so much a list of particular behaviors. It isn't do's and don'ts. It's a display of how grace changes things, transforms our lives. It is showing what is so amazing about grace. And so it's not that people look at you and say, oh, those, that's a, he's a Christian. He doesn't do this, that, and the other thing. Or you know how people sometimes say, oh, oh you, you're a Christian. You don't do that. 
Uh, that, that is true in some cases. There are things that maybe you don't do anymore because they're not edifying and, and you don't want to be brought under their power and all of that kind of thing. Uh, but what we're talking about is something else. It, it, we're talking about people being able to sense the grace of God in your life. Not in a weird mystical sense, but the idea that you've been transformed. Hey, if somebody else is living in you and that somebody is God, divine, you're going to be different, right? There, uh, there's been a bunch of movies where you know, people get into other people's bodies and then they fight for control. That's kind of what was going on in Corinth. They were fighting for control. Only the Holy Spirit doesn't really fight. He just lets you get into your flesh if you want to. And, and so when we're controlled by the Holy Spirit, obviously there should be a, a change. People were around Jesus. They were blown away by his winsomeness and his attitude. And it, there was never anybody like Jesus. But Jesus at that time was a man fully filled with the Holy Spirit. He had set aside his prerogatives of deity, refusing to use them, and he lived the entire time on earth as a man with the Holy Spirit. And everybody who was normal wanted to be around Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees and scribes and those kind of people, the self-absorbed and the self-righteous, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. But every normal person could tell that he was something else. And, And that's... It's supposed to be true of us, and uh, it can be more and more as we walk with the Lord. And so, uh, verse, uh, verse four, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. The grace given them to God enriched them in all utterance and knowledge. This refers to the various gifts of the Holy Spirit. You might already know that the Corinthians were abusing these gifts. The most obvious example found in chapter 14 is going to be that they were all speaking in tongues all at once without any interpretation. Paul will say that as a result, visitors to their gatherings thought they were crazy. Grace was definitely not being displayed. And so people, literally visitors and the unchurched were coming into uh, their assembly and, and instead of whatever else they ought to have been doing, they were all jabbering in tongues. Paul will go on to say it was a genuine example of get, that they actually were gifted with that, but that they were displaying it wrongly. And instead of people seeing the grace of God, receiving a message from God, being confronted by God, being comforted by God because of interpretation and, and legible understanding of things, they looked around and said, I have to get out of here because these people have gone crazy. Jesus Christ drives you crazy. Some of you have been in meetings like that, contemporary meetings, where people seem to go crazy. Everybody starts doing something weird, loud, and strange, falling down, running around, screaming and shrieking. Very Corinthian. And Paul the Apostle would have none of that. We'll study that when we get there. But they were abusing these gifts. And so the thought here in our verses is that the gifts were given to the believers to adorn them in a way that they displayed the grace of the giver. Someone exposed to a gift being exercised ought to be able to deduce something supernatural and selfless is occurring, not something natural and selfish. Certainly not fear that God will drive you mad. And so verse six, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, One day God confirmed Paul's testimony of Christ, the gospel he preached among them by giving them these spiritual gifts. And by the way, those who oppose Paul's apostleship would have a hard time uh, because 
he was the source of their salvation in one sense because he had brought the message and through that message that he preached, they had received these gifts. And so it's hard to argue with his apostleship even though they wanted to push him away. Verse seven, so that you came short, come short rather in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This may mean they had all the spiritual gifts we can find specifically listed in this letter uh, when they gathered together. More likely, it means they had all the gifts that were necessary for them. The Holy Spirit gives gifts as he chooses. There's no gift exchange. We can't steal a gift from someone because it seems better. Neither are we to think we are stuck with a gift. It's from God. It is his perfect choice for you. We'll get there. We'll talk about gifts and how they operate and those kinds of things. But um, clearly, Paul wants them to be operating in a gracious way so that people have an understanding that God is at work. Local gatherings of the church, they're going to have different emphases on the gifts based on how the Holy Spirit has distributed gifts to the believers. One of the things we do here at our church, and I think obviously a lot of churches do it, I would guess most or all, uh, certain people come. We don't know why they come. Um, you're invited. You came from another Calvary. You moved into town, saw the sign. I mean, there's a million different reasons why people might end up in this room. And uh, we try and deal with the people, with people who are Christians on the level of how, how much involvement do you want to have and how has God gifted you and how can we come alongside that gift if it's something that operates more out in the world or how can we encourage that gift if it operates within the church? And, and no one does a perfect job with that, but that's the idea. So sometimes people say, well, how come this or how come that? Well, there's, we don't recognize anybody gifted to do that. And we're not interested in just doing something in the flesh. And we believe that God would bring somebody who had certain gifts if he wanted us to be operating in that sphere. And so we're, we try and wait on the Lord in that sense. And so uh, we're probably deficient in some areas. The church down the street is deficient in some areas from a human point of view because we're not doing everything, uh, but we're doing what God has gifted us to do. We're filling the niche that he has helped us to fill. Grace, uh, verse eight, he will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ever see a honeycomb dripping with honey? Verses eight and nine are dripping with grace. Grace is unmerited. It is unearned. It is undeserved. We just saw in verses one, two, and three that God takes all the initiative to save you by grace. Now you are promised he will confirm you to the very end by grace. The word means guarantee. God guarantees that you are going to make it to the end. We're so used to loopholes and fine print in guarantees that we don't take God at his word. And so you buy something and you think it's got a lifetime, unbreakable, ironclad warranty, and then two months into it, you call them up and they say, funny thing about your warranty, funny thing about this guarantee, there's some fine print going on there that you didn't read. If you actually use it, then all bets are off. <laughs> and, uh, you know, these guys, they're always looking for a reason to not warranty your product, uh, you know, and, and uh, so we, that's how we think. So we would read the word guarantee and think, oh, okay, it's a conditional guarantee, but it's not. Let me, let's do it this way. How would you answer this question? Is salvation the work of God? Well, of course you'd say, yes, it is. What we sometimes overlook is that salvation is his work from start to finish. Salvation includes those three steps that we talked about. 
initial salvation, sanctification, and glorification, that is God's work of salvation in our lives. It's from start to finish. He will confirm you to the end means if you are in Christ, you cannot be lost. He who began his good work in you must complete it. It's on him, not on you to complete it. Is there a passage of scripture that indicates God starts to save you, but then leaves it up to you to make it to the end? Did Jesus on the cross say, it has begun? Yeah, he said, it is finished. And I know that's a challenge. It's a challenge to me. What, that's why you need to go back if you're blown away by this and, and read or listen to last week's study on the Christian who is carnal and the explanation that it is possible for a person to be a Christian and yet remain carnal. It's not advisable. It's nothing that a genuine Christian should, you know, head for. You don't come down at a Billy Graham crusade and say, I'm a Christian now. I'm going to continue in my old life. I love my old life as a drug addict and uh, a guy that ruins people's marriages and whose children berate him. Uh, but thank goodness I'm saved now. You know, the, the most obvious thing is that you go on and you grow. You say, well, Gene, you know, what about these people who are sinning? Well, what about you and me who are sinning right now? You and I have sin. John the Apostle said, if you say you have no sin, you're what? You're a liar. And so there's no getting out of it. And so the question that you have to ask is, how much sin is too much sin? How can I, we're all gonna, if, if, if I was struck dead right now, I would die with sin because I'm in an unredeemed body, but I have every confidence I'm saved. And people can't say, well, he only sinned so much. If he had sinned one more time in that area, or if he had done this, then, then he'd have been lost forever. There, there's no tabulation like that. And the way to look at this is to understand salvation is all God's work. He frees our heart to receive or reject him, but it's all his work from start to finish, not just start. He doesn't just get us started and then hope we make it to the end. These verses mean what they say. Even the carnal baby believers in Corinth were already confirmed to the end. If anybody wasn't saved, it was these guys in Corinth, based on Paul's description of them. But he had a confidence that they were. And he said, you are guaranteed to the end. And, I, he's, and that's why we're seeing this emphasis on grace to counter their flesh. I'm not going out on a limb. Gordon Fee writes, Paul expresses confidence about a community whose current behavior is anything but blameless and whom on several occasions he must exhort with the strongest kinds of warning. And so you would say to me, well, Gene, there's some really strong warnings in the Bible about sin and not making it to heaven. Yeah, and a lot of them are from Paul, but he starts by saying that these people are confirmed to the end, and that's a foundation for it. You know, we're always talking about context, how important context is. These opening verses are the context for everything Paul is going to say. And so when we get to a verse that sounds like he's saying they're not really saved, we need to think back to chapter one where he says, hey guys, you've been confirmed to the end. Uh, Paul the apostle wasn't afraid to tell people about the grace of God. But then he would say, should grace abound that sin, or should sin abound that grace should so much more abound? And he would say, God forbid, you would even think about that. And so we'll talk about a lot of those things as we move forward. He can express confidence in their salvation because God is the one making these promises and his grace cannot fail. What end is Paul referring to? He's talking about their death or the coming of Jesus for his church at the rapture. 
The words that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ definitely refer to the rapture, not the second coming. The Corinthians were far from blameless, but so am I and you too. When we see Jesus at death or in the rapture, we will be completed. Between now and then, we really ought to cooperate with him in becoming more like him every day. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The God who called them is faithful to keep them. And this word called, it's a powerful word. Albert Barnes writes and says, the word called here does not refer merely to an invitation or an offer of life, but to the effectual influence which had been put forth, which had inclined them to embrace the gospel. In this sense, the word often occurs in the scriptures and is designed to denote a power or an influence that goes forth with the external invitation and that makes it effectual. That power is the agency of the Holy Spirit. We briefly discussed prevenient grace last study. It's the grace Barnes is writing about. It's the grace that goes before the influence of the Spirit to free your will to receive Jesus or to go on rejecting him. Fellowship with Jesus, that's what it's all about, a relationship with the living God. God is working to restore that which was lost in the garden. As Ortland said, he's uh, our lover pursuing us through the history of the world. I'll establish the church in Corinth, God thought. It'll be a light in the darkness of human depravity. It'll be salt to season and preserve. It'll be truth to defy error. It'll be power to transform uh, lives from the guttermost. A display of long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but rather that they would repent. That church, like every church, is nothing more than a gathering of believers in Christ. We are the way God has chosen to display his grace. The mannequin in the twilight zone got too comfortable out in the hustle and bustle of the store patrons. She forgot what she was created for, to adorn and to display. And so let's not make that mistake. I mentioned the Lions Club. Lions wear vests that are adorned with patches. I read on their website that there are more than 20 award programs to acknowledge their accomplishments. Some of the Lions have many, many such adornments encouraging the younger Lions to do the same. Or maybe you were in Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or something like that where they give a bunch of patches and you see some of these guys and they're you know, all weighed down. Or in the military, the medals and things like that. In the supremely uh, glorious passage in the Revelation that describes our return with Jesus, we read this. This is from Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so our return is here and elsewhere likened to a wedding banquet The church is the bride in this illustration, and it appears that we are given a fine linen garment like a wedding gown, you might say, and that each of us can further adorn our garment by the righteous acts we perform for Jesus on the earth prior to the resurrection and rapture. Not just good works, I mean, that's what we're talking about, but we're talking about good works done in the name of the Lord that put his grace on display so that people know that it's the Lord. We can have tons of patches, as it were, not for pride's sake, but for the Lord's sake. Answer me this. Does a bride want to be as beautiful as possible on her wedding day? I'm sure there are exceptions. But uh, 
Typically, so you, 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 the, the bride wants to be as beautiful as she's ever been and maybe is ever going to be on her wedding day. And, uh, you know, little girls, they, they think about this and, and it's, a, it's that magic moment and they pick out the dress. That's why they have all these shows about she said yes to the dress, you know, and all that kind of thing. The dress has to be perfect, the makeup, the hair. I mean, you, you go for it. It costs you a million bucks just to get the bride ready. The bride wants to be beautiful, not, not out of pride, not, not, out of, not to show off. She wants to be beautiful for her groom. And everybody oohs and awes because she is. So too ought you want to be beautiful for Jesus. So if Jesus says, hey, in this illustration, I'm a bridegroom and you're the bride, then I want to be beautiful. I don't want to just show up in some filthy white garment. Say, hey, Lord, I wish I could have done more for you, but I was too busy. Or I was over here here doing bleep or whatever it might be. And then you, you look over there and there's, you know, your neighbor all full of patches, you know, beautiful stones and embroidery and things like that, just gorgeous. And so people say, oh, rewards, no big deal. I don't care if I get any, you know, we're just gonna throw our crowns at Jesus and all that. that that's true. But you need to think about it differently. You are wanting to be beautiful for the Lord. He makes all things beautiful in his time, but we can further adorn ourselves while we are on display on earth in our own corinths. One final question for us today. Is my display of God's grace missing or is it amazing? Let's pray.